0: Welcome to the Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique.
1: When a winemaker's resume includes the likes of Screaming Eagle, Dalaval, and Myakamas, people expect great things. Well, that's exactly what Andy Erickson is doing at Favia. With a small winery located in a historic estate in Coombsville, Erickson sources outstanding fruit from all around Northern California to produce some spectacular wines. I sat down to talk with Erickson about how he got started in the wine world, the beginnings of the Favia label, making it in his garage with his wife, and how together they are producing some of California's highest quality wine. All that and more in this episode of... The Honest Poor.
0: This episode of The Honest Poor is sponsored in part by Fooditer.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditer.com.
1: Hi, welcome to the show. I'm John Leonard. Today we are recording at Del Frisco's in Chicago. And joining me today is Andy Erickson of Favia. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's going to be fun. So you're working in Napa Valley, but that's not where you started with winemaking. You started somewhere else, right? Where'd you start? Uh, I started in Argentina actually,
2: just for a year when I was just getting interested in wine. I traveled through Latin America for about six months and ended up staying in Argentina for almost a full year and working in the vineyards in Mendoza with the Catena family, oh, which was okay. a lot of that's, fun. A, that's a good place to be. Yeah, well, I kind of stumbled upon it, didn't really even know that that's where I would end up. But uh, it, as I was traveling, I got to Buenos Aires. I was actually on my way to Chile to uh, contact some people that I was going to hopefully work with, and I ended up in Buenos Aires, and one of my friends was very good friends with Ernesto Catena and introduced us, and he said, no, you're not going to go to Chile. You're coming with me to Mendoza, and we (laughs) drove out there, met the whole family and the team, and I ended up staying for almost a year, and it was great. It was I mean, I was the guy pruning and digging holes and planting vines and working on the bottling line and just, uh, yeah, doing a little bit of everything at the very bottom. That's great. Well, so, how'd you get into it? I mean, where'd you grow up? How'd you get into wine? Well, it's funny that we're talking here in Chicago because my parents are both from Chicago, and I grew up in Elkhart, Indiana. Okay. Uh-huh. So when uh, when I was very young, we lived in San Diego in California but my dad got a job in uh, South Bend, actually teaching at Notre Dame University and also working at Miles Laboratories, which was in Elkhart, Indiana. He was in research and development. And so I grew up in Elkhart, Indiana with my mother always saying, don't get too used to this because we're moving back to La Jolla. And so- uh, (laughs) La Jolla, Elkhart, yeah, I think La Jolla. So it was a great place to grow up. We grew up on a little lake and we grew up surrounded by agriculture. And so I think being in agriculture, that's part of it. You know, I grew up not on a farm, but surrounded by farms. And that's one thing people don't realize is that winemaking is really like 90% farming. Really what it's about, isn't it? Sure. uh, um, I did that, and then we moved to the East Coast. My dad jumped on the biotech bandwagon. We moved to the East Coast. My dad started a company. And um, I went to high school out there and went to university at Tufts University. I studied international relations, and I ended up doing a uh, summer program in France. Uh, Tufts owns a, uh, an old monastery, actually, as, and it's a summer program where you go and study at the UN in Geneva, and you live up in the Alps in this, in this town um, on Lake Annecy. Beautiful, and I lived with a family that loved food and loved wine, and that really planted a seed in me about
1: just a way that I wanted to live, you know, connected to... So your host family in in Europe really is where you started to learn about and love wine, huh? Oh, yeah.
2: And uh, they had, underneath the backyard of the house, they had a cellar full of thousands of bottles of wine. And it wasn't like first-growth Bordeaux or anything like that. Um, It was mostly village wines. The guy was a salesperson. He would travel the week and come back come back at the end of the week with his car full of wines, some of them like shiners, you know, no label. But we would carry the dining room table outside and cook outside and drink wine into the night, and it was just great. We would go down in the cellar and pick out a few bottles of wine and just you know, I was 19 or 20. So for me, that that was pretty awesome. So I came back not even knowing that that was something you could do for a living, but one thing led to another. I moved to San Francisco. I started working at an advertising agency And a few things happened. I was introduced to a family friend who was invested in a winery up in Napa. I also, our clients at the ad agency were Pubeline, who Mm -hmm. owned at that time, they owned Inglenook and BV and some other wineries. And so I would go up to meetings in Rutherford and I was working, I had a really sort of everyday job doing spreadsheets and budgets and stuff. And I'd be staring out the window, watching these guys prune vines and working in the field. And I just thought, man, I should be out there doing that. So I just, after a few years, I just decided that's what I was going to do. And I, I also had studied Latin American politics at Tufts. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I decided to combine a whole bunch of different things. And I just took off and traveled from, I started in Central America. I made my way all the way to the south of Chile. It took me five months. And then I ended up staying in Mendoza for almost a year. So. So that was it? You had no formal education? and in... Not at that time, no. And then I, I ended up meeting Paul Hobbs there. I didn't even know who the guy was, but he showed up at the winery uh, during harvest, which was at the end of my stay. And I ended up connecting with him, and he's a very generous guy. And uh, he said, oh, when you get back to California, let me know. I'll help you find a job. And he helped me find a job at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars in Super 1994. It's a good place to start. Yeah. And so, again, I was just doing pump overs and doing, you know, cellar work during harvest and yeah, I was just lucky and that was my first harvest gig in California. So I did two harvests in that year, one in Argentina and one in California and shortly after that I ended up getting a phone call from someone saying, hey, you should, you should call these guys at Newton Vineyard because the cellar master's leaving and they need someone to work in the cellar. And so I. I called and I ended up going up and meeting John Konsgard and uh, interviewing with him. And I, again, I didn't know who he was or anything, and, <laughs> but what an amazing person. And just, I was inspired by the guy and just really lucky to be able to work for him. I worked for him for about a year and uh, worked in the cellar and it was a lot of work. We were doing a lot of handwork with barrels and just sure. uh, old style winemaking and Ended up doing a couple of other things and then decided I needed to go back to school. And I went back to UC Davis. I got a master's degree. I finished that in 2000. So yeah. that was kind of the beginning of my real career. I mean, the rest of it was just kind of, sure hey, you, this is really
1: you're no longer I'm... a seller rat now doing the manual yeah, work. Yeah, I was like, OK, I really want to do this. And what do I need to do to get this done? So, so what happened from there? So you finished off at Davis, and so then where'd you go?
2: So I was just really lucky to already be connected with some great winemakers in Napa through yeah, um, I'd say through work, but also through a tasting group that I was invited to join, and um, there were a lot of really well-known winemakers in the group, um, and one of them was Bob Levy, who was making the wines at, at Maryvale at the time, and also um, starting up Harlan Estate, which again I didn't really even know what that was, but when I went to school, Bob said, well call me when you're done with your master's degree. Maybe we can do something together because we're building this winery in Oakville and I'm going to need somebody there. So I remember I finished my master's degree in 2000. I called Bob and I said, remember a couple years ago when you said to call? And uh, (laughs) This is the call. (laughs) This is the call. I'm ready. And he said, okay, come on up. And I went up and they were still under construction building what's now the Bond Winery. Mm Mm-hmm. We used to call it the West Winery, because the Harlan Winery hadn't been, they hadn't broken ground on that yet. And I uh, went up and I worked with him for not even quite a year. I mean, I i thought, you know, what a great opportunity to work with someone in a place like this with, I mean, the guy sets a high standard for everything he does. And I uh, just, again, just really lucky to be there and learn from him. And, and then at the same time, my wife, Annie Favia, who's the namesake of our winery, she's so we have to back up a little bit because we met um, about a year after I moved to Napa. Just really lucky to meet Annie because the young people I know now who are in Napa complain that there's no nightlife or anything to do in Napa. And you know, go back to the mid '90s, there was not yeah, much was to do. It was a much smaller town then. And I used to go back to San Francisco and visit friends and go out, but I ended up meeting Annie and we we were pretty close right away and uh, decided that. We wanted to, you know, I was I wanted to get into winemaking. She was, she eventually decided to get into viticulture, and she went back to school and studied viticulture. We sort of took turns going back to school. She went back to school first. She ended up working with David Abreu in the vineyard for. Um, she ended up being his viticulturist for 12 years, which was pretty amazing. Again, but, rubbing shoulders up high the ladder there. Yeah, incredible. And they, they became very close, and and. uh So anyway, I was up at Harlan working, and at the same time, the Staglans were starting to build their winery, and I was introduced to them, and what a great opportunity. I became their winemaker, like mid-construction of their new winery, and and, uh, so I became their winemaker in 2001, and I did that for a couple years. And then Annie and I started to, well, in those two years, we had already gotten married a couple years before. We had two kids and you start to think about things differently. So sure. um, we just decided that we wanted to do our own thing. So in 2003, we started our Fabia winery and I started consulting for other people. And uh, so that's really where kind of what we're doing now started in
1: 2003. So 2003, were you still working for other folks or did, were you dedicated fully to Fabia at that point?
2: No I've always since that time I took on some consulting work and have always worked with other wineries since 2003 so at that time we were starting uh, Ovid Vineyards which gosh when I first went up there it was just a vineyard that had just been planted like the year before and the vines were two buds off the ground and there was a job site trailer and nothing else up there and now I don't know if you've been there but it's one of the most breathtaking yeah. sites for a winery and vineyard that i've ever seen and it's just been amazing to be a part of that because that's so that was
1: 2003 that's you know 14 years ago they well, started really small though with favia right you started just a couple of barrels yeah here so and that, that right?
2: year we um well we had already been making wine in our garage since 1995 so when annie and i met we just decided to start making wine together we made Pinot Noir, we loved Pinot Noir. We still love Pinot Noir. We made our first, uh, I think the first one we made was from San Giacomo Vineyard. We were able to meet Angelo San Giacomo, who's a legendary guy yeah. and drove out there and he offered us a little section of the vineyard and we took it back to our place in St. Helena and made the wines there. And we ended up serving the wine at our, at our wedding three oh, years later, which was pretty cool. So we had already been making wine for you know seven or eight years together so when we finally decided to go commercial with it we had really great vineyard connections through annie i had already been making wine for many years and so we started with just a few hundred cases each of three different wines so we have um and one of them i have here today uh, which is 12 vintages later we're going to taste the 2014 but the 2003 um, we call the wine Cerro Sur, which means the South Hill, and it comes from this old planting of Cabernet Franc way atop the mountains uh, east of Coombsville in a place called Rancho Chimiles, which is a beautiful big ranch um, farmed and owned by Terry Wilson, who's a another legend in Napa Valley. He's sort of a surfer slash uh, farmer. <laughs> he's in his early 70s now, but he's still surfing, still surfing in the uh-huh. winter in Maui, and he... Uh, farms the vineyard all year besides that. And anyway, Annie had, through her viticulture work, she was working with Palmeyer. And Palmeyer was getting this little block of Cabernet Franc and just blending it into their Palmeyer Red for years. And she fell in love with this and basically told Terry, you know, if, if there's ever a chance to make some wine from this vineyard, we want to make it. So at that point, the vines were 25 years old so they were already really well established so now the vines are 40 years old and we have a stretch of wines you know 15 year vertical of that wine which is really awesome that's cool so we started in 2003 with i think 300 cases of that wine we made another cabernet franc uh, blend from one of david Abrams' vineyard the madrona ranch uh, which was called la magdalena we're still making that wine but from a a different source, Oakville Ranch now, which is another incredible site in Oakville. Um, We started with those two wines, and then a Russian River Pinot, because we love... You're still doing Pinot. Yeah. So we did that for a while, and then, um, you know, I took on some consulting work. I had Ovid. I had another little winery called Dancing Hairs, which just recently sold to a new owner in Ovid. I pretty quickly took on Arietta Wines after that. Hartwell Vineyards I took on in 2003 and uh, a couple other projects and so i pretty much right away had a really good little stable of wineries i was working with and then we had our own thing and it's just it's been pretty amazing since then just taking on new projects for other people and growing our own brand and now we have a for favia
1: we have a little winery in coombsville we purchased a um, you read my mind that's my next question you're obviously not making wine in your garage anymore I know you no, I know and we've we got made, a new winery Where we is made it? wines uh,
2: for many years up at Ovid after we built the winery we started our brand there um, but a few years ago we were able to buy an old winery from 1886 it was built by a guy named Antonio Carboni and he was the first Italian settler in Napa Valley he and his two brothers the Carboni brothers Nicola and I forget the third brother's name, but they planted vineyards in Coombsville in the 1870s. So Nathan Coombs, who was the founder of Napa City, he bought a big ranch off the old Tulake land grant. That was the Mexican land grant in that part of Napa. So he bought land off the land grant, and then the, the Carboni brothers were some of the first people to buy land out there, same thing. And... So they were farming grapes, and they also, it was known as the Antonio Carbone Winery and Italian Gardens, which I think is really awesome. That's in the 1890s, 1900s. So they were as famous, apparently, for their eggplants, peppers, and tomatoes as they were for their (laughs) wines. But they used to grow grapes, and they, the lore is that they sent the wines in the early days to the uh, Uncle Sam Wine Company, which is right on the river in uh, Napa City. And they would send those barrels of wine down to San Francisco. Hmm. On a barge, but then they ended up building a winery uh, on the property in 1886, and that's now our winery for Favia, and we also live in the residence there. It's pretty amazing. The residence is upstairs, and the winery is downstairs.
1: Do you have any vineyard land there, or do you just own the winery?
2: We don't have vineyards there. We still work with the same vineyards we've been working with since we started, and we've been adding new vineyards. But our our vineyards are more in the hillsides, and this is right down in the valley and we really bought it for the winery facility, and um, it came with a walnut orchard, and we nice. planted olive trees, and we have planted all sorts of fruit trees and vegetables, and so really kind of re, uh, restarting the old farm that they had there. And uh, if you look at the old pictures, they had their vineyards back on the hillsides as well, so we don't own that land nearby where the vineyards are, but we have great long-term contracts with growers in Coombsville and still Rancho Chamiles and in Oakville and so we've got a a nice little little portfolio of wines from Coombsville and from Oakville and we also are making wines from Amador County up in the gold country where my wife Annie has been involved with a vineyard called Shake Ridge Vineyard since Mm -hmm. it was uh, started by Ann Kramer back in the I think we Annie first got a phone call back in the late 90s she had known ann for for so long i mean annie was starting out as a viticulturist there were almost no women viticulturists back then and and uh mary Marr, she's being mary hall she she was one of them mary now runs the viticulture for harlan for all their vineyards and then ann Ann kramer who was a viticulturist at shandon i believe and then she was consulting for people and then she bought this vineyard up in Amador and it's so funny because back in the late 90s Ann would say I really want you guys to make wine from I'm gonna buy a property and I want you to help me with the vineyard and I want you to make wines from it and so we always thought it would be in Napa. She called one day and said all right you need to come see the property I found this place and it's in Sutter Creek which is way up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So you had to truck the food all the way down to Coombsville huh? So now we bring the, yeah, we bring the grapes back to Napa, but it, it works out great because Anne's viticulture is unbelievable. She's taken the whole thing in Amador to a new level, and we harvest the grapes at night, and we ship them in a refrigerated truck. We bring it down to Napa, and, you know, we have full control over the wine sure. making, so that's been fun. Tell me about the wines you're making. So we, uh, for Favia, we mainly are making the, the Napa Valley wines. Um, we started with a love of Cabernet Franc. And so we still make two blends of Cabernet Franc. One we call Cerro Sur, like I was saying, and this comes from this old planting, uh, high elevation um, in those eastern mountains of Napa. And that is usually a blend of about two thirds uh, Cabernet Franc, and then we blend in some Cabernet Sauvignon from a nearby vineyard in Coombsville just to give it a, a nice roundness and some dark fruit character. But the last couple of vintages have been. Cab Franc I mean the Cabernet Franc from there is just really strong character beautiful aromatics beautiful fruit and so we've been moving more in the direction of of having that be more uh, dominant with Cabernet Franc and then we still make La Magdalena which is coming again well this is about 60% Cab Franc 40% Cabernet Sauvignon and this is coming from Oakville Ranch which is a very well-regarded vineyard in the eastern hills of Oakville, so about 800 feet elevation overlooking Oakville, just above Dalla Valley, and Peter Michael has a property there now. It's a fancy neighborhood up there. It's a great neighborhood, (laughs) and we're just lucky. We've been in there for about 10 years and kind of been growing our footprint within the vineyard as we've been going. And now we also make an Oakville Cabernet Sauvignon, which is coming from that vineyard, and we've just started working with Vine Hill Ranch as well in Oakville, which is a beautiful, historic property on the other side of the valley. So up against the Thomas Mountains. Yeah. Mountains. Yeah, so between those two vineyards, we're really excited about our Oakville Cabernet Sauvignon. We used to just make a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, but since we've been seeing the profile of those two wines, the Coombsville Cabernet Sauvignon and the Oakville Cabernet Sauvignon, the character of the wine is very different, although the quality, I would argue, is right there I and mean, one is not better than the other. It's interesting so we're now bottling
1: two different Cabernet Sauvignons. It's yeah. interesting that you're working with fruit from the the Vaca side and the Mayakama side both in Oakville. How do yeah. how do they vary? So the uh, the the Vaca Mountains, which are on the eastern side of the
2: valley, that's really a pretty uniform mountain range of Volcanic soils. I mean, that's a volcanic pediment, meaning it's not a cone volcano, but it's just like a big fissure in the ground where just lava oozed out of there and it's just been decomposing for millennia, you know. So, very rocky, not a lot of rainfall. The wines are very rugged and dense and very aromatic. On the other side, where Vine Hill is, it's an alluvial fan coming off the Mayacamas Mountains. Uh, the roots go deeper. The vines are a little bigger. The wines are dark and chocolatey and very round. And so when you put those two things together, it just makes a beautiful signature kind of Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Any other wines you're making? You're missing anything? So we, it's, it's fun. Uh, Annie and I. So we've been living in Coombsville for 10 years. We used to have a different property that we, that we developed nearby the, the Carboni Winery property that we own now. And that was a little five-acre property. Well, it still is. Um, we planted a, a little vineyard there, a dry farmed Sauvignon Blanc vineyard. So we make a, a wine from that vineyard, which I would argue is very unique. It's no malolactic. It's dry farmed. The, the berries are tiny. The yields are low. The wine's very intense. We don't use any, well, we use a very little, small amount of new oak. So the wines are very uh, intense, fruit driven wines. Um, And then from the Amador vineyard, we're making three wines. We have a Syrah that we make, we have a GSM, a Grenache based wine uh, called Rompe which means jigsaw puzzle. And that's been a lot of fun. This will be our 12th vintage making that wine and at the beginning you know I've never made I had never made a wine like that before so it was like a puzzle you know so rumpic means a means jigsaw puzzle we just it's also just a great word in it any is. language so uh, those two wines and then we make a small amount of viognier we had originally planted a tiny amount of Viognier in the property to co-ferment with the Syrah but then we made a white wine out of it Um, early on and just fell in love with it so we planted more grapes on Shake Ridge Ranch on Ann's property and we make I mean it's less than 200 cases but it's a sought after
1: just delicious wine so that's that's another good one you're making quite a variety of wines Um, if I had to ask you what your style is in winemaking or what you bring to the wines what would that be well, for me, I think I've always
2: been drawn to wines that have a sense of place, you know, the concept of terroir. And so I always would hope that when someone tastes the wine, the first thing that they would think of would be, wow, this, this must be from an incredible place. I'd love to go visit that vineyard. Because that's how I feel when I taste great European wines or great wines from California as well. I just think, wow, this must be an incredible sight. But beyond that, I mean, I think for me, texture is really important. I love the wines to have a roundness and a softness to them. Even though they're gonna be concentrated and dense, I think the wines need to have length. And so we work in the winery to really control the temperature and the time that the grapes are on the skins because we don't want the tannin to be extracted too fast. So we're doing a long maceration at a lower temperature. I always explain to people it's kind of like cold brew you know, it takes longer, but the results are really nice, and you. So does that make for like a silkier tannin
1: then, or?
2: I think so. I mean, I think you um, the the wines grow through a certain tannic phase when you're macerating them, but then they come through at the end, and they have a strong mid palate, but the tannins are rounder. I think if you if you press the wines too early, you can end up with something really tannic, and so we're trying to kind of push through that and get to the the polish of the wine, but still with a great mid-palate. So that's what we look for in the red wines. But with all the wines, I am really I really want the fruit to come forward. I mean, we, we spend so much time, as I said, it's farming. I mean, we spend so much time in the vineyard all year long. When the fruit comes in, I always describe it as like if you've ever been to Tokyo and seen the way they treat their fruit, like they, they almost gift wrap right, every right. single piece of fruit that's in the market. And when the fruit comes in, I want to treat it like that. I want, to, I want to protect it, and I want to you know, make sure that every ounce of character comes through. So we're really protecting the grapes from oxidation. We're controlling the temperature. We do a lot of quality control, a lot of lab analysis and stuff. But we, we use native yeast whenever we can, and um, we're not really manipulating the grapes when they come in. I feel like if you harvest the grapes at the right time, you shouldn't have to
1: add anything it should just sure, and you're in a place that should have enough yeast going on just in the air yeah and uh and not inoculate at all
2: you know we've had some vineyards over the years where we just figure you know what that just needs to be inoculated and we do that but in for the most part what we do is we're doing a cold soak And the when the grapes come in we keep them cold for about five days or so and usually as soon as, as soon as we turn the heat on and warm up the tank; the yeast just starts Start going. And as long as you know we have a microscope, we're looking under the microscope. We can send off um, the fermentation for genetic testing to see what's going on in there. That's been a really incredible tool that's been developed. At any time, you can basically send off a sample, and the next day you get this readout of all the yeast and bacteria that are growing in your wine. And on one hand, it could completely freak you out. But on the other hand, like... Too much information. It could be too much information. <laughs> but on the other hand, you shouldn't be surprised that there's yeast and bacteria growing in your wine. Your wine is mean, active
1: in the wine. Yeah, that's and what it is.
2: And uh, I think having more things happening, especially at the beginning of the fermentation, gives a more complex wine. So we try to let the yeast fight it out at the beginning and then... Ninety-nine percent of the time, the saccharomyces just comes takes on right over. Takes sure. right over, yeah. So, you know, unless we have an issue, I mean, in a normal year, we'll we'll be very hands off with the winemaking. So, we've been really lucky the past, gosh, five, six years. We've had a
1: lot of really good vintages in a row. Right? Yeah. Anyway. And so, you brought some wine for us to taste.
2: I did. I brought two wines, and um, I just thought it would be fun to try two of our Napa wines we have are coombsville cabernet sauvignon and then we also have the saros which i was talking about which is the this is the 2014. these are both 2014. Okay. so on the left is the coombsville cabernet sauvignon and on the right is the Cerro 83 83 cabernet franc and the rest is cabernet sauvignon is that where we should start is uh, with should... the saros on Cerro the Cerro? on the right yeah on the right okay good wow still youthful color huh yeah this is, these wines are just being released. I, I just wrote the release letter yesterday, so these. Oh,
1: really? So these are brand new. Yeah. So like so a these sneak were peek. bottled about
2: thirteen months ago, and we're just releasing them now. Okay. Really floral. Really pretty. Yeah, that's what I love about Cabernet Franc. I a mean, violet. And- as much as I love Cabernet Sauvignon, that floral character and that sort of lavender, licorice, red leaf tobacco, those notes for me are just—they just keep me coming back to the glass, and I just—I love it. Yeah, it's so pretty. But I still get that raspberry, blackberry character. But Yeah, the darker
1: kind of berries are there.
2: But there's so many other notes in the wine, and that's what I love yeah, about it.
1: Deep and complex, and obviously, 14, you had a good year to work with.
2: Yeah, 14, uh, we just are about to release the wines, and the theme of the release is optimism. <laughs> because this vintage was just, I wouldn't say it was a breeze, but the wines were always just they put a smile on your face, you know, from Mm -hmm. the minute we brought them in, there's just great acidity, great aromatics. There's a richness to the nose. Yeah, very expressive, not overblown in any way. And this is just what we're- But it's certainly not uh, Cab Franc
1: from the Loire.
2: No, 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 this is um, Napa Valley. When you have these well-drained soils and lots of sunshine, the Cabernet Franc can be really special. And so the key there is finding these sites that are, they give you the right amount of stress. You can't have too much fruit on the vine, so you have to limit the yield. But it goes beyond that herbaceousness
1: and into these
2: licorice and floral characters and stuff. And that's
1: um, what I love. Boy, when you say texture, that's what this wine's about. As soon as it hits you, like a velvet uh, blanket on you, but then those tannins do come through because it's young, but yeah. those will settle down. And-
2: Great complexity. Yeah, I always say I want the wines to have length, you know, so it has that hopefully a silkiness, you know, and and a softness, like I said. But there should be enough tannin that it's gonna gonna bi- give you a big finish, and also that the wines will age. I mean, I love wines with age on them. So our first vintage of this particular wine was two thousand three, and it's so fun to go back to that vintage now. Where it, I'd say it's still it's beautiful, but it's definitely not peaked yet, and it's still on a crescendo in terms of. What makes it interesting to So it's to me. still got time at 03, huh?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see this wine going easily 20 years. But drinking beautifully right now. Wow, delicious, rich, good acidity. Makes you want to have some food with it, huh?
2: hmm But again, for me, it's a wine. It's a very unique wine. It's a wine from a place. I mean, the fact that these... The fact that Terry even planted Cabernet Franc way up on this mountaintop back when he did, I mean, it's kind of crazy. But the wine has such a strong character, and I don't think you could replicate it. I don't think we could say, well... You know, we can all, it's only two acres. We make about 500 cases of wine in mm-hmm. a good year. It's not like we could say, like, we need to make 10,000 cases of that wine, because you just can't, you can't replicate that. And that's what I, I love about
1: it. Wow, that's really delicious.
2: What's next? All right, so then uh, in the other glass, we have the Coombsville Cabernet Sauvignon. And this is also 2014. And as I said, Annie and I, uh, we've been living and making wine in Coombsville since. 2005, even before there was a Coombsville Appalachians.
1: So. Yeah, how long has that been around? I want to say
2: 2011
1: or 12. I mean, wow, it's that's really when it started, huh? Yeah. So Coombsville pretty far south. Yeah. So we're you'd expect it to be cooler there, which, in my mind, isn't perfect for maybe Cabernet. Maybe Cabernet, you want it to be a little hotter, a little further north. You know, you think down in Carneros, Carneros, you think of Pinot Noir and yeah. Chardonnay because it's a little cooler, and then as you get north in the valley, what, what, what can I expect from Coombsville Cabernet? Unlike Carneros, which is very much clay soils,
2: and so good for Chardonnay, Merlot, Syrah, things like that, Coombsville has volcanic, very gravelly, rocky soils. And so it's similar to, let's say, the east side of Oakville um, that I described earlier. Sure. But because we're closer to the bay, it's, it's cooler. And if you read the old textbooks from the 1940s and 50s from UC Davis, they would tell you, you can't ripen Cabernet Sauvignon in this area. Right. But for better or for worse, things have changed and it's become a great place for Cabernet Sauvignon. And so it is warmer these days there. But also I'd say that the viticulture has become better. Of course, and yeah. So. You know, people are working really hard in the vineyards to limit the crop load, to open up the canopy. And so we get fully ripe Cabernet Sauvignon, although what I love about it is it's more on the savory side of Cabernet Sauvignon, as opposed to Up Valley where we're getting those deep blackberry cassis, like really fruit-driven wines.
1: The nose is definitely
2: earthier. Yeah, we get more of that dried sage, pencil lead. Some of these characters that I also love in Cabernet Sauvignon and frankly, I find missing from some California wines that are very fruit driven. For so sure. For me, I love making wines in this area. And also we have an Oakville Cabernet Sauvignon, so it's really fun to show them side by side. There's, there's a bit of a dustiness to the nose and it's almost like a yeah. Rutherford. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's a character that defines Coombsville. I mean, you have this, this character that is the terroir of Coombsville I and mean, you can't force it to be anything else. And so we've just chosen sites really carefully that'll really bring out the best so we have hillside vineyards very well-drained soils lower crops so we get great density in the wine but you still get that sage and
1: earthiness and stuff that i really love i love that because some napa some napa caps could be over the top blousy fruit as yeah, opposed to exactly I, I like this kind of it's almost an homage to the old world but it's still napa
2: yeah it's definitely a california wine but I think if you had it in a blind lineup, you might say that it was Bordeaux, but I think the density and the richness of the wine is very much California. Mm, That's
1: stunning. Great acidity, silky tannins, good fruit, good fruit. I mean, the nose nose holds back. The nose is a little shy on Mm. the fruit, but then on the palate it comes through and brings all that stuff you want out of Cabernet. Yeah, and the acidity that you
2: mentioned, I mean, I, I do love that about Coombsville. Because it is cooler, especially at night, we get, we're get we the first people in the valley to get the fog coming in and the last area where it burns off. So we have, you know, it can get pretty warm during the day, but it's not a sustained heat. And so we get that natural acidity, and the tannin evolution is is slower, so it's later to be harvested. Mm-hmm. I mean, we definitely start picking... Oakville and then maybe two weeks later we're picking the Coombsville fruit so it gets longer time on the vine. Yeah, I mean especially the last few years, I mean it's been warmer. So
1: it's a it's a good place to be. There's a spiciness on the finish so I'm assuming all new oak.
2: It's about 75%. Yeah. At the very beginning we were doing 100% new oak and I find that especially as the vines have aged because when we were making our wines at the beginning you know in the early 2000s a lot of people had just planted their vineyards or they were replanting their vineyards. So the wines benefited from a lot of new oak to add to the structure of the wine. But now I feel like the vines, I mean, these are the vines are 15 years older now than they were when we started. Yeah. So the
0: They're character becomes the stronger.
2: You want that to come forward. So we've been toning down the new oak a bit, but it's still two thirds or 75%. So I, I really like what the new oak does in the wines and the Napa wines. So. You know, It adds that spice and that nutmeg chocolate mm-hmm. note to the wine. So we, we use the once-used and twice-used barrels on the Amador wines, which we don't want the new oak and the Syrah and the Grenache-based wine. So it kind of works out well in the winery because we kind
1: of funnel the new barrels into the NAP sure, program and sure. work their way down. Well, great structure. Again, the texture is just lovely. Thank you. Um, drinking beautifully now, but a wine you could definitely lay down in 10 years and be very happy with. Andy Erickson from Favia, thank you so much for your time. Your wines are absolutely delicious. Your story's intriguing. I definitely want to come out to Coombsville and uh, check out and see what you got going on soon. Please do. Thank Great you. to have you. Thanks, Thanks very a lot.
0: much. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpourpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart, music by Kevin MacLeod. Thank you.